is to find that space in life that would give him leverage, that would give him advantage, that would give him a place of control in which he can overlook and see all of life and all of its intricacies and complexities and be able to have a comprehensive understanding of how it all fits together and how it all works toward an end. He keeps striking out in his search. No surprise, uh, we, those of us who have given ourselves to this same exploration and journey, find that we regularly strike out as well. We just can't find that one singular key that will unlock the meaning of life and provide the satisfaction and fulfillment that we're looking for. And so this leads the preacher to conclude that all of life is vanity. And what we've been saying throughout the series is that the best translation of that word vanity is vapor. He repeatedly says that life is vapor. What he's getting at is the fact that it's elusive. That key to unlock it all is elusive. It's like vapor. You know, you see a mist in the air and then immediately it's gone. You might reach after it, you might chase after it, but as soon as you make your move to do so, it disappears. And so is the exploration of life in pursuit of that key to unlock it all. So the preacher is serving as our tour guide and mentor, a tour guide of life, pointing out to us the realities about people, places, and things. And this morning, we are going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting with verse 16, and we're going to look through uh, verse 3 of chapter 4. And the preacher's going to force us to think about some unpleasant truths about the human condition and situation in the world. So let me read the passage for us. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they, may see them, that they may see that they themselves are beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Told you it was going to be heavy and weighty. I think we we need the Holy Spirit's help every week. But how about if I pray for us and ask the Holy Spirit to truly be present with us as we navigate this text together. Holy Spirit... 
It's not even so much that we, at this point, have to ask for you to come because you are already present here with us. And so we pray that you would work in us. We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our very lives to the truths of your word, even when those truths are hard to accept, even when they are unpleasant. And the reality is, just like every Sunday, um, we represent a variety of stories and backgrounds as we are gathered together this morning. So we pray that you would pursue us wherever we are, whatever we might think about the Bible right now, whatever we might think about you, Jesus, whatever we might think about the Christian faith, we pray that you would drive true realities home to our hearts in such a way, in such a way that we would actually be changed. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. 20 years ago on this day, Warren Zevon returned to The Late Show with David Letterman for one final performance. The reason it was going to be one final performance is because he had been diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer prior to this. Now, the name Warren Zevon may mean nothing to you. Maybe if I tell you he is the singer of that 1978 song, Werewolves of London. Does that ring a bell for some of you if you didn't? Yeah, if you're if you're teenage years, you definitely probably aren't going to know who he is, but I actually wouldn't be surprised if you've heard the song before um, and didn't realize it. There's a great line, one of the most profound lines ever in music history about where, seeing a werewolf drinking a pina colada. Um, so that gives you an, extent, uh, an idea of the song's content and what it's about. But anyhow, um, I came across an article, and in this article, it actually uh, reflects back on that night on The Letterman Show 20 years ago when Warren Zevon returned for that final performance. And I want to share with you uh, a quote from this article. It comes from the one who was the writer of the show at the time, Bill Sheft. And what he's t the context for this quote is he's talking about the lead up to the show and how there was so much anticipation for it, um, that there was so much meaning wrapped up in it that they were hoping that it would turn out as magically as they anticipated, but there's obviously no way to know. So Bill Sheft talks about sitting in um, the, 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 the studio as the show is being taped, and he says this, can we make it through the entire taping? So often we fall in love with the idea rather than the reality. And the reality, let's face it, rarely measures up. Of course, he says, it was an inspired idea about having Zivon come on the show for his final performance, but it was so intensely personal to Dave, Dave Letterman. Could the reality possibly match? So often we fall in love with the idea rather than the reality, and the reality, let's face it, rarely measures up. That hit you this morning? That's something you resonate with? We often fall in love with the idea of life, but the reality is what? That it actually rarely measures up. We experience life not only as blessing, but as curse. We experience life not only 
as beautiful, but also as burden. The preacher of Ecclesiastes, our our mentor in, in this series, has invited us, I want you to think about it this way, he's invited us to sit across the table from him as he teaches us about life, as he offers us his, his wisdom. And this morning in particular, he wants to have a tough conversation with us. And here's the temptation, because it's not just a temptation specific to this moment, it's a, ten, a temptation, uh, generally speaking, in life when it comes to hard realities. Uh, what, are we, what are we tempted to do in the face of hard realities? Run away, ignore them, cover them up, live superficially, whatever it takes to not actually have to think about them and deal with them. But the preacher is saying to, the, to us this morning, don't get up. Don't get up from the table. Hear me out. It's going to be uncomfortable, yes, but hear me out. He insists that we hear him out about the human situation in the world. He's been walking us through the various ways in which life is vapor. Basically, he's giving us uh, evidence after evidence that points to the fact that no matter what you identify as the possible key to unlock the meaning of it all, in the end, it comes up empty. And as we turn our attention um, to halfway through, well, more than halfway through chapter 3, in verse 16, uh, the preacher is going to begin to list a series of new evidences to support his argument that ultimately life is vapor. And in our verses this morning, we're going to look at two, uh, depravity and death, depravity and death. Starting with verse 16, this is where the preacher gets into this new catalog of uh, evidences that he's going to point out for us. And I want to talk about the first one using that word that I just mentioned, depravity. It's a word you've probably heard before, it's a word that gets thrown around, and depravity has to do with moral corruption, with the corruption of human nature. And so you can kind of have that as a working definition of depravity as we we move through these texts. It's moral corruption. It's the corruption of, of human nature. In verse 16, the preacher says, in the place of justice, there was what? Wickedness. And then he adds to it, in the place of righteousness, there was what? Wickedness. And so, from the start here, the preacher is pointing out to us what is real and true. Hard realities, hard truths, but they are true and real nonetheless. No matter how hard we might want, how much we might want them to not be true, how hard we might live in such a way as to ignore them, they remain true and real. And I find the language of in place of interesting. And the reason I find it interesting is because the, the, the preacher knows that both justice and righteousness are good things. And deep down inside, you know that to be true as well. That justice and righteousness are true things. Even when you are not fully aware of it in the moment, you are always longing for justice and righteousness, as uh, am I. And when the writer uses this language of in place of, he's basically saying this, that these things that are good, these things that point us to the way 
the world is supposed to be, in place of them are these things that point us to how life is not supposed to be, namely injustice and wickedness. So this is the beautiful thing about wisdom literature, is because ultimately it's always bringing us back to the realities of creation. It's always bringing us back and pointing us to the way that God designed life to be, the way that he intended life to work in a way that um, produces shalom. The Hebrew word for peace, that means flourishing. It's the fullness of life that God intends. It's the way things are supposed to be. And the wisdom literature is grounded in those creational realities. And so the, the wisdom writers as they think, as they contemplate, as they reflect on life, that is their foundation. They are operating out of a worldview, so to speak, of shalom, the way that God made things to flourish. And here, um, in an indirect way, the preacher is saying, shalom has been lost. Shalom has been devastated. Shalom has been ruined. In place of justice, there is wickedness. In place of righteousness, there is wickedness. It's not supposed to be this way. And this is why, not always, but so often, in the face of tragedies, particularly in the face of injustice and oppression, as we see it happening around us, we can't help but to have this instinctual response, even if we don't use these words, of it is not supposed to be this way. This is not what God intends. And so there's something in us that cries out against us, against it, that, that squirms, that, that wants to run in the opposite direction because we know that those things are foreign intruders into God's good creation. What this is pointing us to is actually what we reflected on last week, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. In other words, we are made in the image of God. The author of Shalom created us, designed us in such a way that our, our innate longings would be aimed toward the realities of Shalom. But the fall has done what? Corrupted human nature. The fall of humanity has produced moral corruption. And so even though deep down inside somewhere we long for shalom, in our sinful fallen nature, so often we give in to temptations that actually run contrary to shalom. But I want you to think about this for a moment because one of the things that I find wonderful about the wisdom literature is that it, it, it's constantly pointing us, or I'll say it this way, it, it's constantly presenting us with evidences for why the biblical story is actually true. It's constantly presenting us with evidences for why the biblical story is true. You know, I, I shared with you um, the, the quote from the writer of the David Letterman show 20 years ago. And what he said was profound incredibly insightful, and, and I would suggest to you true and real, but it's not like he was coming from a biblical perspective when he said that. Here's the thing, we, we can't help so often but to communicate things that are true, because when he made that statement about how life rarely measures up to the dreams and longings that we have for it, he was inevitably speaking as an image bearer of God. 
And we can't help but to do that because we do carry the image of God within us. We are image bearers. And so, as I said, we long deep down inside somewhere for what is good, true, and beautiful. The tension is that all too often we actually do things that are contrary to those good, beautiful, and true longings. And the um, preacher, he, he helps us to consider how we live in a world where humans don't treat each other the way that God intends. If we look at verse 1 of chapter 4, what is the preacher contemplating? He's, a, he's contemplating oppression that takes place in the world. We uh, had a time earlier in our service that Margie led us through in which um, part of it was we um, thought of some categories of people in our own city and around the world who are experiencing oppression, and we prayed for God to intervene. Um, why do we do this? Well, we do it because God calls us to do it as his people, but also we do it because we're image bearers. And, and it's one way, even through prayer, in which we cry out and say, it's not supposed to be this way. And so the writer of, uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes is doing the same thing we can't help but to, do, but to do. He's contemplating, he's reflecting, and he's being real. He's not only reflecting on what is beautiful about the world, but also what is broken about the world. And as he looks out, he tells us that he sees oppression. And he uses very uh, direct and powerful language. He says, he looked out and what did he see? The tears of the oppressed. Imagine that. You know, even as we have in the background some of the examples that we prayed for earlier, like imagine the tears rolling down the cheeks of one who is currently oppressed. And what does the preacher add to it? There was no one to comfort them. So in the midst of their oppression, they are alone. And then he looks at the other side of it. The ones who are actually doing the oppression, what do they have? It's not tears, it's power, he says. There was power, and again, no one to comfort the oppressed. Human beings treating others in a way that is contrary to what God intends. And the preacher is feeling the weight of this. He's feeling the weight of how the oppressed are vulnerable and how the oppressors are so very powerful. And so we live in a world where this stuff happens. Like, we, we just have to name that. And life can be weird, isn't it? In the sense that, like, we, you're, part of you is probably in response to what I just said. Well, yeah, duh, obviously. Like, we prayed for some of those things. But do you allow it sometimes to just, like, impact you? that we live in a world where gross injustice happens. And yet human beings are image bearers of God, created for glory, beauty, and transcendence. And those very people are the ones who commit the kinds of things that we're reflecting on. Do you ever just allow yourself to be impacted by that and to cry out, whether it's loudly or within yourself, this is not the way it's supposed to be? That's what the preacher is doing. Part of the reason that sometimes we're not impacted by it is because we are so 
used to it. Isn't that sad? That things like injustice and oppression are actually commonplace in our world. They're commonplace. And it can be, because they're commonplace, it can be so overwhelming. Now, we're actually going to see by the end of the text that it would be unhealthy for us if we spent all of our waking moments under the weight of these matters and only thought about those things. That would be too much for us. It's a burden that we are not meant to bear. But God doesn't want us to just simply ignore and pretend like those things aren't real because then what do we end up doing? We end up living in a a fairy tale world of our own making. People are not good. Whoa. Now let me clarify. Let me qualify it. People were created good. People were created in God's image. They were created to be in right relationship with him, right relationship to themselves, right relationship with others, and right relationship to the actual physical creation itself. Those things help capture the shalom that God intends, the fullness of life in those primary relationships of life. Human beings were created good as image bearers. We were created to to represent God's rule in the way that we take care of creation, but we are also created to reflect God's image in the way that we do that. That's profound. Our, 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 our destiny, our vocation as human beings, if you really want to get down to the basics and foundation of it, is to actually reflect out into the world who God is and what he is like. So when I say that people aren't good, keep in mind that context. And, you know, I, I'm pointing this out regularly, but why, it's why here at City Church, we regularly rehearse the story of God and recognize that the story of God does not begin with the fall. The story of God begins with creation. That's our starting point. That provides the context. And the context is a good beginning. A good beginning in which human beings are good. But we're naive if in our current day, we, that's all we have to say about human beings is that they are good. Human beings are not just simply good. Human beings are also evil. I mean, this is what the preacher is inviting us to reflect on. Image bearers of God are capable of horrific behavior. They're capable of taking another human being and oppress them, or oppressing them, or another group of people and oppressing them. This is mind-boggling stuff when we consider the beginning of the biblical story in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and the beauty of creation and what, how we see life flourishing there. We are so far removed from that good beginning. But I want you to see something here. So it would be... What happens sometimes in the church, in Christian circles, is that we do talk sometimes in such a way that makes it seem like human beings are actually only evil and that's all they've ever been. That's not true according to the biblical story, created in God's image. The other extreme is that you will oftentimes hear people in our culture say, human beings are good. But that, that creates, it creates a tension, like good, like that's fundamentally who they are. That, I'll just speak personally, that creates a 
conflict and attention for me because that's not, my, through my own personal eyes and lens of life, that's not what I experience and witness. I actually, I actually experience and witness both realities. That I see human beings oftentimes doing things that are beautiful and good. But I often see human beings doing things that are horrific and tragic. And this is true for you. It, that's not just my personal uh, experience, my personal um, the way I see life, that's how you do as well. And we, we want to name those things accurately. We, we want to actually have a true, a comprehensive, a meaningful um, analysis and diagnosis of what is actually out there, particularly as it relates to human beings. Blaise Pascal was a philosopher, really smart guy, mathematician. I can't imagine... Um, being a philosopher, theologian, as well as good at math, because I am not good at math at all. So I'm jealous of people like Blaise Pascal. But at one point in his writings, he wrote this, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach us that there is in man some great principle of greatness and some great principle of wickedness. It must also account for such amazing contradictions. Let us examine all the religions of the world on this point and let us see whether any but the Christian religion meets it. A modern-day theologian said this, Every human is both an arsonist and an architect, marked with the thumbprint of good and the claws of evil, breathing both death and life into this world. Humans are the stench and the aroma. Contradictory realities, but they're both true and real. And it's important for us to name them, and important for us in the way that we go about living our lives to live in light of them. Because if formation in life, change, transformation, is something that we're going to experience, we have to understand our true selves that we are capable of greatness and we're capable of wickedness. We are, as maybe you know the name Francis Schaeffer, um, we are glorious ruins, as he said. I, I think that's a beautiful way of capturing who we are as human beings. We are glorious ruins. We are glorious, but we are also ruined in our sinful and fallen state. And before we move on to the next evidence, the, the second one, final one, that we'll consider this morning for how life is vapor, I want you to feel the tension of where, like, where we go with this. Like, how do we respond to this? What do we do with this information, this wisdom that the preacher is leading us into? Because, you know, in this text, he, he's writing, you know, in the Old Testament, and he's not about to lay out for us necessarily a gospel-centered sermon which is going to point us explicitly to Jesus. But here's the question I, I want you to consider. How do you change? How do you change? And, and I know that we're like maybe talking about two things here. We're talking about these grave injustices in life, oppression that happens under the sun. 
And now, but now we're also talking about like each and every one of us as an individual. And as is true of the whole of humanity, there is, as Pascal would say, a principle of greatness within you. You're made in God's image. You're beautiful. And you have longings that God wants to bring out and he wants to aim in the direction of shalom. That's the life that you were meant for. But at the same time, there's much about you, there's much about myself that is wretched. It's just true. It's hard, it's hard to accept, particularly in our day and our culture. It, it's, like, it, it's almost weird and uncomfortable for me to say that, but it, it's true. The preacher says that what? In the place of injustice, there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there was wickedness. So often in the place of our goodness is wretchedness. How, do we, how are we delivered from this wretchedness? How, how can we be changed and transformed in such a way that what I described, that our, our desires would more than maybe before be pointed in the direction of shalom? How can that happen? And I just want to leave you there at this moment in the sermon with that. And I'll put it this way. Can you deliver yourself? Can you deliver yourself from these contradictory realities. Let's now consider the second evidence in these set of verses that the preacher gives for why life is vapor. And this next evidence is the reality of death. The reality of death. In verse 18, the preacher says, I said in my heart with, with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. What does the preacher mean with this statement? What does he mean that he, he, he sees that God is testing humanity, in a sense? And that he's testing them that they might see that they themselves are but beasts. I think that what the preacher has in mind is this. He, he's communicating to us that God is inviting us to reflect on what we've become. God is inviting us to reflect on what humanity has become. We are but faint shadows of our true selves. Created for glory, for beauty, for transcendence, for eternal life. And yet, we find ourselves as those who are prone to death. Death is our, in, is our inevitability. Like we've, there was a sermon a few weeks back that we, we said that. Death is even inevitable for each and every one of us. And for me, this is the great evidence that life is vapor. Because let's take this evidence, the one of death, and process it, like using the, the terminology and logic of the book of Ecclesiastes. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you can do to prevent yourself from dying one day. Life is vapor. That position of Advantage of leverage of gain is not accessible. 
We can't gain that level of control over life. No matter how much technology improves, and thank God for advances in technology, part of what it means to be creating the image of God, to cultivate and to bring out the creative potential that is in creation. And medicine and technology can be used for good to help prolong life. That's a good thing. But regardless of the advances in medicine and technology, I one day will die. Have you ever, now, I think it was the first week of this series, I said that, like, I think I tend to be a very deep thinker, reflective person, and find myself in moments where it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to go crazy in my thoughts. So I don't want to project that on you. But because I was preaching on this passage, and it's not the first, this happens often. I'm not going to tell you how often. That might creep you out. And I actually would have to, I don't know how often. But I was thinking about this reality that I'm going to die. I, I, I could, it's like scary to say, I could die today. I could die tomorrow. I could die a month from now. I could die 10 years from now. I do not know when I will die. But I will die. Same applies to you. And because I was preaching on Ecclesiastes the other day as I was having these reflections, it made me feel so vulnerable because I started thinking about how there are, so, there, there are a lot of things in life which like, I can gain some leverage over, like some advantage over, and I, I can control the situation. You know, there are some situations in life that I can make better or that I can you know, delay the inevitable. I, I can't fix this one. I, I can't make it so that I, on my own, live forever. And that creates vulnerability for us. It's one reason why we don't want to reflect on death. I mean, even as I say these things in front of you, I'm like, I don't, I, I don't want to say them. It, it, it's just, it's vulnerable. It's so vulnerable to say and think these things, but they're true realities. And this is a point where, in life, we want to get up from the table and walk away from the preacher. It's just too much. It's, it's, life is too much of a burden in this way, and we can't think about it. We can't handle it. But the preacher is still saying to us, stay seated, stay seated. This is good for you. You shouldn't think about death only all the time, like, that wouldn't be healthy, but it's also not healthy for us to ever uh, reflect on the reality that we will die. The preacher says that human and beasts are alike in that they both die. The same fate awaits them both. Now, the preacher is not saying that in all respects, human, humans and beasts are the same. It's not what he's saying. He's talking specifically right now about the theme of death. That, this, in a sense, he's actually saying, despite all of the ways in which human beings transcend beasts, they cannot prevent themselves from dying. That just like the beasts, they one day will be dead. Humans have no advantage over the beast in this way. And the preacher like, admits some of these complexities of life. He, he, 
he talks about, you know, who knows, you know, whether the human spirit goes up and the spirit of the beast goes down. This word to know means to understand completely. Uh, it references direct firsthand experience or knowledge. He's saying that kind of knowledge is not given to us as humans. We can't know such lofty things. We are finite and limited in this way. And here's what is fascinating about the fall of humanity. You know, going from God's good intentions for us at creation and then what we've become. Basically, we have, we have ended up where we are because of our pursuit for control. Because of our pursuit of leverage and advantage. If you go back to the garden with Adam and Eve, the first humans, what was their sin? Trying to be God. Trying to access that space, that knowledge that is God's and God's alone. And this has been the downfall of humanity ever since. This is, there's, it's good for us to explore life and to try to figure out all of these realities as the preacher's doing. But, you know, as we've said, it can so easily turn into a sinful pursuit where we are trying to gain advantage and leverage, where we're trying to find that key to unlock it all so we don't have to be so vulnerable, so we don't have to trust God so that we can actually be God. It's actually the desire to be God and to push him out of our lives that has actually led us to a condition in which we eventually die. Because, as we saw in the garden, curse comes upon them. Curse comes upon the creation. And life is not only experienced now as blessing. Life is not only experienced now as beautiful. It's also experienced as burden. You know all too well about the burdens of life. The small burdens as well as the big burdens. Death is the result of depravity. And depravity is most clearly expressed in our sinful desire to place, push God out of control of our lives and to try to insert ourselves into that place. Genesis 2, God said this to the first humans, for in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says in Romans, for the wages of sin is what? Death. All right. How, how do we, how, do, how should I end this? How do we wrap this up? I don't know, I didn't think about, I didn't get that far in my preparation, so give me an, I'm just kidding. In response to the unbearable things of life, namely these two particular things of depravity and death, the preacher touches on two things to help shape our response, like how, how we should live in response to them. The first is to trust that God will right all wrongs. I want to draw your attention to verse 17. The preacher said, I, says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The preacher speaks about the reality of God's judgment here as a source of comfort. In the same way that it's not comfortable for us to talk about human depravity, it's certainly not comfortable for us to talk about the idea of God's judgment. 
but it's an idea, a reality that we see throughout the pages of the biblical story. It's both an Old Testament reality as well as a New Testament reality. And I want to suggest to you that it's a reality that you should embrace and love. What if, what if we lived in a world where those who are oppressed with tears streaming down their cheeks and who are alone in face of those with all of the power, what if we lived in a world where that was the end of the story? Like that was the end of their story. They just ultimately die vulnerable, alone, with all of the power of life just sucked from them. What if that was the end of the story? What if we lived in a world in which that was it? I don't want to live in such a world. You don't want to live in such a world. I'm telling you, you don't. No matter how hard you want to resist the idea of eternal judgment, you actually long to embrace it because you, it would be too terrifying for us to live in a world in which God doesn't judge. And we praise be to God that he judges, that he holds oppressors accountable, and that he one day will right all wrongs. That is true, and we can cling to that. And those who are the victims of oppression in their loneliness, in their vulnerability, they too can cling to that because let me tell you, they are clinging to it. There are many cases for us in the West with our power and affluence, we can just, you know, God's judgment, yeah, right, we've moved beyond that. Well, let me tell you, those who are the victims of oppression in some cases in our own city, but also around the world, in so many cases, they are clinging to the truth of God's judgment that one day all wrongs will be made right. That God holds people accountable for their sin. We sometimes respond to these hard realities of life with spiritual statements that seem so pious. Like we say, well, God's working it out all out for good, you know, and it, which is theologically true. But sometimes we say these things just as a way out, as a way out to not actually have to enter the pain of someone else, as a way out from actually not having to explore our own pain. We can hide behind theology. That's not what the preacher is doing. The preacher is naming something real, that God will one day judge. He will one day judge. He will right all wrongs. So trust that God will right all wrongs. And then the second to last way, and last way we respond to these hard realities of depravity and death is that we focus on what God has given us to do. Verse 22 So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Now, you know, we've already seen, I think, twice verses where the preacher says something similar. You know, those places where he talks about eating and drinking and enjoying life. And I think it's a wrong interpretation to look at them and say, well, the preacher is actually pointing out for us that if we if we live without God as part of our worldview, then that's all we have, so you might as well go eat and drink and be married. That's not what the preacher's saying here. The preacher is, this is actually a positive statement. It's actually a way of life which is lived as confession to God. It, 
Being able to focus on our work, so to speak, being able to eat and drink in gratitude to God is actually a manifestation of how, that we, how we trust that he will one day right all wrongs. The preacher is saying this, you can go about your work. Yes, these injustices are real. These, th- th- this oppression is a reality in this world, in life under the sun, but you can go about your work. You can go about your life trusting that God will right all wrongs, that he will ultimately deal with injustice and oppression. And that's not saying that we have no role or purpose to play. That's not what the preacher's talking about. What the preacher is getting at is that, and I've alluded to it a couple times, that if we only fixate on depravity and death in life, the burden will become unbearable. Not only will we not be able to provide any help to the people around us, but we will actually be crushed under a burden that we were meant, not, not meant to carry. I want to, as I end, go back to that um, David Letterman show from 20 years ago with Warren Zevon. Um, in the, when, they, when David Letterman interviewed Warren Zevon that night 20 years ago, um, he, he, I'm just going to read this to you in the context. So when Letterman asked his friend how his work had changed after learning that he was sick, because remember he had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer, he replied, you're reminded to enjoy every sandwich. As soon as he heard it, Letterman's longtime band leader, Paul Schaefer, knew the line would become famous. And then he, reflecting on it, says, man, if I had only said that in my life, I think my life would have been worth something more. All he said was that he's learned to enjoy a sandwich. There's nothing inherently Christian about that, but there's something inherently true and good in it for us to reflect on, even as those who claim the Christian faith. It's what the preacher has said a couple times already. There is so much about life that is unbearable. Life is frequently experienced as a burden. But sometimes the best response of faith is to eat and drink and enjoy God's good gifts in gratitude. Because those sandwiches, whatever it might be, point us to the truth that the realities of injustice and oppression are not the only existing realities in life. Because it is still true that we are image bearers created in God's image for his glory, and it is also true that we await the future day when God will right all wrongs and make all things new, and we will experience all of God's good gifts for eternity in gratitude to him. When we are able to do that over the course of our lives, it provides glimpses, glimpses of glory, glimpses of glory that we need, because without them, life is too burdensome. Martin Luther, the reformer, theologian of the Reformation, said, This then is the portion of the righteous, to enjoy the things that are present and not be afflicted by the things that are in the future. Tomorrow's problems are still going to be there. And yes, it is appropriate often in life to give thought to and reflect on tomorrow's problems today. But sometimes, 
Sometimes we just need to enjoy a sandwich. We need to enjoy God's good gifts and remember that apart from that, life is too burdensome and we end up carrying burdens that we were not meant to carry. And as we think about the future, it points us to well, it's, the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that even in redemption, points us back and points us ahead. It points us to the reality of Jesus because on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the curse. He took upon himself the burden of life, the burden of life, sin and its consequences. He took it upon himself so that as we turn to him in faith, We are restored to that right relationship with God. And then we are given the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection. The resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead. Him ultimately overcoming the realities of depravity and death. Him undoing the curse so that it begins to reverse itself. But he gives us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit goes to work slowly but surely beginning to restore the image of God within us. And that, that brings us back to that question earlier. How do you deliver yourself from your contradictory nature? You can't. But God has provided a way in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for defeating our greatest enemy, death itself. We thank you that we do not have to live in fear of death, although death might make us feel vulnerable. You give us confidence because of your work, Jesus, because of your life, your death, your resurrection on our behalf and our faith in you. We can have confidence that death does not have the final word. We can have confidence that oppression and injustice in this life do not have the final word. We pray that you would give us wisdom in life to know the appropriate times for us to fight against injustice and oppression around us and that you would give us the wisdom to know when that spills over into a self-centered arrogance in which we think we can solve the problems of the world. Help us to negotiate these hard, complicated things in life. And I pray, finally, that you would give us the capacity to enjoy your good gifts so that we would know that life is not only burden, but it's also beautiful. Pray in your name. Amen. If you have... uh,